0: Folks gotta eat. It was true in 2045 BC,
2: and it's true today in the year of our Lord, 2045. Is it really necessary for the rat to be at the meeting? He
3: is part of this team as much as me.
2: We're hard as fuck. I am in hell. I am in absolute so hell. So you're just going
0: to walk out into the open in front, Wait, in front of Wait, are you me?
2: moving? Oh, my God. <laughs> is that what you're doing? I
0: mean... Good morning, Sprocky! Does it kind of, like, pixelate out? Like, Tron? It- of course. Yes! yes. Yeah. <laughs> the coolest iteration of it you can imagine is how it Come out with your hands
2: up. Can you tell him to fuck off? Our friend tells you to fuck off. Which is to say, no, sorry. But maybe you might be able to give me a counteroff. I'm scared by grenades.
0: Ugh. Grenades. <laughs> it's, a, it's a justified fear. Yeah. brain dance like that fetches a tidy price these days. You'll need sex, right? Bruh.
3: Yes, uh, we all know what sex is like. Jeez. <laughs> uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> no.
0: Collapses to her knees. Oh my god. Fine. Oh. Say it. And his Daedalus appears in the swivel chair. Or at least the image of him does. He looks up at you and says... Fuck. <laughs> Ain't that sweet. I'm going to kill you after this. Real... Coffee. Real Jay. Kabuki-masked version of Retch Bartmos himself. Holy shit. It's a rabbit. Holy shit. Surrender now and we'll kill you quick, will we? <laughs> what do you think? People's boots are... Drives
2: straight and pure, straight through the glass window. Lost the story. Tell us the, the story. You
0: realise you forgot to attach a piece of hardware. On the other side, you just hear ah. <laughs> and takes out his sword and points the sword. Babe, you're good. good. We're fucking bad.
2: Dosvidanya.
0: Straight through his neck. I don't see bone either, but I'm not going to look.
2: My leg's fine.
0: I always knew you wanted to fly, kid. Come find me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roll to Cast, a tabletop RPG podcast with both actual plays and interviews. I am Phil, and I'm joined here at the table by... Sean! Hello! So, after our Feed the Beast finale has wrapped up, we're continuing our inter-season content, and we are joined this week by some very special guests. We have... The puzzle designer for the award winning mobile game, Tiny Bubbles, the mayor of Balanced Town, James Hutt. Hello. Hello, James. And with him, lead designer of the Witcher RPG and co designer on what we'll be talking about today, Cyberpunk Red, Cody Pondsmith. Hi, Cody. Hey, hey everybody. First thing I want to say, guys, is congratulations. An amazing achievement. Uh, I think you guys should be very proud of the release of Cyberpunk Red
1: thank you very much we uh we really bled into this book
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that where the red comes from Red. yes that's why it's red so have you been yeah. have you been celebrating at all
1: uh, a certain amount of celebration we've, we've had some stuff going on in the in the background you know work keeps moving but uh yeah yeah it's mostly just exciting
0: surely you deserve a little bit of a break
1: we got a little bit right james yeah we had a break
0: <laughs> five minutes back to it I, I didn't make him go directly back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Cracking the whip. So how much work does Red represent for you guys? Uh, I'm guessing years of of your life or years off your life.
1: I think it's two, and I would say it's both. Um, I would say I would say it took us years, and it probably also took some years off, as it were.
2: I, I think it's kind of an interesting thing as well, because obviously, ever since uh, as the iterations have gone by over time, starting with version one and going through twenty twenty and V three and all the rest, w- there was always this expectation that there was going to be a new game and a new system. And, and I know, James, for you, obviously, you'd uh, jumped on board in the last two years, but um. Cody, was this something that had been building up even in the pipelines for years, and is always like something that's in the back of um, Mike and Lisa and your head in terms of you know w- we're gearing up towards what will hopefully one day be a new iteration. So potentially it's probably more than two years, isn't it? It's
1: it's actually kind of funny because um, it is exactly it is exactly like that. You know, um, uh, several several years ago, Mike had started sort of putting together what would eventually become Cyberpunk Red. Um, we, he actually had been writing articles like for several years, sort of on and off about what would happen after the Fourth Corporate War. Um, So it's, it's kind of funny because originally it started out as this concept of like, oh, we'll do another printing of 2020 that has some updated material and stuff like that. And then it sort of eventually evolved into like, well, if we're going to do this much work, let's, you know, let's take the plunge. Let's do a new edition.
0: So how does that work when uh, in terms of, coming at the system of the game and saying, okay, we're going to keep the DNA. Where do you where do you even begin creating a, a system to to simulate a world that you know feels fun to play? What, where, where do you begin?
1: It was this interesting process of like Mike would develop sort of the top level stuff and he'd be he would say, you know I want this section to work roughly like this and I want, like here's a base sort of design and then it would get thrown down to James and from time to time I would come in to to help out with the design and it would be this process of sort of taking this this basic idea that Mike had had given us and refining it into something that like really ran well and I'll I'll throw it to James mayor of uh, of Balance Town, which is our our home of design and testing
3: yeah, so um, I think I'd agree with you on that one, Cody. Uh, it was more or less of uh, I want the I, I don't want to change these parts of the game um, in the beginning because they're very core to the 2020 experience, and we didn't want you know you, you want the new edition as something to feel like the older one, but you want it to be new as well, and uh, there's a balancing act between that those two ideas. Um, I would say the the short version is. Uh, we wanted to do a good survey, step one, of everything in 2020 that we loved and um, find out why we didn't love the things we didn't love and then find a way to love them again. You know,
1: that process, with that process came a ton of a ton of iteration and a ton of initial tests. You know, we, James and I, uh, bringing in Mike every once in a while uh, to, to get an overview, spent a lot of hours... Sitting around a table and testing, testing different iterations of, of favored rules back and forth with, you know, one or two point changes to determine how something flowed to, to make it really the initial vibe of 2020 while still being fun and fast paced.
2: I think that's such an interesting thing coming at it from two different perspectives. Obviously, like Cody, for you uh, growing up in a household of uh, tabletops and James, you um, have a history. So I know when uh, just a couple of years ago, you developed the game Triangulate. And one of the things that you were talking about in developing that game was the nature of accessibility, especially for, in that sense, strategy games. But... um, Both of you, do you feel the weight of having to find that balance in terms of you want to find something that is accessible to everyone without uh, potentially upsetting an established uh, history and fan base, which can stretch from Red and even as far back as The Witcher. These are franchises where you need to find that balance. So how much do you kind of feel the need to strike that balance? Or conversely, is it more freeing that you have the ability to just try something new and different?
3: Um, I'd say that... uh... If you On initial thinking about it, uh, you might think that you have to make a choice between the two. It just turns out that there's a third option of uh, "I want everything, I want nothing, I don't." The problem is that that third option comes with a lot of work. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, yeah, it's easy to just you know toss everything out and say, "Oh, we'll do something new," but you lose stuff. You obviously lose stuff in the process, and uh, I. I can convincingly uh, say that uh, in this edition, we uh, we tried to take that third option. um, We between like keep the old, do all new. We tried to make the old new instead, and
0: and kind of keep it accessible to people coming at it fresh.
3: Yeah, we spent we spent a lot
1: of time going back and forth on that. um, In the case of a lot of the sort of sub rules and bits of of, um, gear. In Red, where there was sort of this understanding that we wanted to make sure that as much of the really cool stuff from 2020 and 2013 was carried forward, while still working in a new way that would be accessible to people, um, you know, a lot of the um, a lot of the exotic weapons or almost all the exotic weapons in Cyberpunk Red are in some way a variant of old cool guns that we actually did a poll. Um, form form people that was like, what are your favorite guns from the uh, from the game? You know, what are you what are your favorite guns from all of 2020 or all of 2013? And then uh, we sat down and kind of figured out how to bring those forward in a way that made sense within Red while still maintaining what made them cool in 2020 or in 2013 uh, to kind of try to strike that balance. I, I know personally, I can't speak. I can't speak. Uh, on your behalf, James, but I know that I had a, a certain amount of I wouldn't exactly call it anxiety, but there's definitely this understanding like, well, we have to strike a, an effectively in many places in that impossible balance of bringing everybody with you while bringing in all the new people. And we uh-huh. I think we always knew there were going to be some people that we weren't going to be able to bring forward or weren't going to be able to bring on. But it's that balance of trying to get as many people as possible.
3: Yeah, I, I'd agree with you on that. Uh, you can't truly get that perfect game for everybody. So trying to do so is, is it could be even damaging to the product. Um, I'm with you on that one. I wanted to, to
0: touch on a couple of things you brought up there in terms of like, you know, one is, uh, are there any sort of details in there that couldn't quite make the cut? Is there something some sort of like thing that was sort of precious to you in early parts of the of the design that didn't end up making it in? That you had to, or things conversely, you had to fight for that you were really proud that you stood your ground on and made it into the final game.
3: That's a hard question. Uh, wow, uh, I would say that a lot of times initially, I was in a like there would be parts of the design that I'd want to keep from twenty twenty, but I knew that game design has fundamentally changed in the past years. And so it was finding a way to do that same idea and have it not have to get rid of it, but instead reinterpret it. So a lot of those we get we got to take the third route of reinterpreting instead of removal. Mm, nice. Like with auto fire, uh, we got a chance to reinterpret it uh, instead of uh, removing it because obviously we couldn't remove it. You can't remove the idea of automatic guns. Or did we want to, right?
0: Well, three-round burst was sort of ha- hanging around in the jumpstart kit, but that didn't quite make the cut. Is there anything you can sort of speak to that design-wise?
3: I will say that for that one, uh, we just replaced it with auto fire. We found a better way to do it. Yeah. And um, three-round burst was kind of a shorthand for making assault rifles very dangerous in the jumpstart kit. that makes sense and that people would understand. Um, but when we, when we laid out the full math... Uh, it needed to become it needed to evolve along with the math. Uh, a lot of, if I may,
1: a, a lot of the, the decision behind that was also based on the fact that in the Jumpstart Kit, uh, auto fire sort of exists in more of a vacuum than it does in the core book. Mm. And in the core book, we have to we had to make auto fire play well with like different ammunition types. And, you know, other weapons that might auto fire differently in, you know, more damaging ways, because we kind of it was a bit limiting in certain certain aspects when you had to mix that with other things that we were bringing in in the
0: core book. This ties into something that uh, the other thing that I, I was interested in from from what you were saying, and that is to do with with testing and the number of iterations that that you do you say you sat down uh you brought Mike in you sat around the table uh yourselves y- you must have played different firefights with different weapons and different classes a, a million billion times uh does Just it have ever play g- a different
2: character every time yeah does it ever
0: <laughs> do, do you ever sort of lose sight of the fun or uh, does it continue to sort of be fresh kind
2: of I'll, I'll speak
1: here first though it kind of it's it's a weird the, the process was sort of like we would get a task, like we'd be sitting on like, we want to make alternate fire modes work. So now we're going to test alternate fire modes. And that's how that is straight up how Balancetown came to be, because we basically wound up at this place where we were back in the back of the office and we needed somewhere to test all this stuff. So we set up this little we have we have like images of Balance Town, the various iterations, because we'd actually build out James built this great little map on the table with uh like um i believe it was dwarven forge pieces (laughs) and uh and varied bits of stuff that we accumulated in some minis to basically test everything and it would be this weird like we'd go back and forth testing like okay i have this character has a shotgun with shotgun shells and we're testing how spread works and we would just get a lot of like okay time to do like a a two or three turn combat between two characters with like equal stats, equal skills. And they've got shotguns with a shotgun shell ammunition and see how that works. And then like at the end of that sort of like iterative arc, we would bring Mike in and, you know, he, we, he, we'd have this big discussion about like, Hey, this is what we found out. We found out that, you know, shotgun shells work pretty well, but you know, auto fire needs to be tweaked a little bit. We figured we'd probably tweak it like this. And that was sort of the I, I don't know. I don't know, James. I think it was fun pretty much the whole time, except for those few times that we got something that
3: was like particularly sticky. You know, Cody, I only brought you in in the last section of those. <laughs> you did. But we did a lot in the jumpstart kit. Man, the first the first ones. The first ones were just me against me. <laughs> against me. <laughs> I was sure. You being there was an absolute treat and it really helped me and I really appreciate that.
2: It's actually something that I kind of wanted to jump on because I know uh James, you talked about how initially you worked freelance for RTG and you've talked extensively about how they were the best client that you worked for and so it was it was great that you were able to turn this into a full-time thing can both of you speak about uh your working relationship between the two of you about how you best like to operate are you looking at uh drawing on each other's strengths and kind of uh picking up for each other's weaknesses and just what it is like for you guys to be going back and forth and working on this game like tunnel vision for months on end and having to be around the same person over and over
1: all right james you have the perfect opportunity to throw me under the bus (laughs) i i'm
3: going to you answer this question first cody Ah, god damn it Uh, no um he's in a different room right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: we're i'm I'm still within walking distance um working with james is really has been really fascinating because we, we we both sort of to some extent have a different like i wouldn't exactly say we have a different game design philosophy but we have very different raising in game design and it shows in a lot of aspects. It's a lot of fun to work with him because he brings up a lot of stuff that I don't necessarily think about, you know, a lot of angles for things that would not initially occur to me. So we we have this kind of back and forth where we spend a lot of time sort of pacing back and forth uh, in the back of the office and just talking through a concept back and forth. It's It's a lot of fun because you'll come in with like, a problem and then we'll spend like an hour just like walking back and forth and talking shit over and, you know, bringing up how we think we want to do it. And then the other person will be like, okay, well this is cool, but what if we did this? And it's a, it's an extremely collaborative sort of brainstorming vibe, which I think is aided by the fact that, like I said, we just have certain things that we think very differently about. So we can sort of help prop each other up.
3: I would, I would definitely agree. I think that uh, our collaboration works so well because we have those different perspectives, and we have different, um, you know, uh, design background upbringings as well. Uh, I think uh, you know, collaborating with somebody that you know is almost exactly like you is it, oftentimes it can get stifling, and I certainly don't have that problem. I instead have the benefit of the opposite. Uh, I, th- I think, in in many
0: ways, it's it's like the process of, of playing a game and collaborative storytelling where you bring those different perspectives and you end up with a, a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, at which point do you yeah. do you bring in even more people and sort of like open up the testing pool?
3: Um, that would be in the public. Uh, it, we, have a, we have our own uh, ring of play testers. That we do for the, the private playtest.
2: Would, would that be the Chrome Berets? Is that the, is that still around?
3: That is not the Chrome Berets. Ah. Um, no, that no. is the balanced town gang uh, <laughs> Jay uh, works on for us. He's just so fantastic about um, getting all these people together to uh, help test the game after we have it at a place where we're ready to show people privately.
0: And do you give them, hey, we need you to look at this sort of thing or we need you to look at the social skills and how they work or do you sort of let them attack it holistically and give you feedback
3: oh that's a really big question um (laughs) how do you do play testing please tell me quickly in a sentence (laughs) Um, you're welcome (laughs) yeah so uh those big holistic tests are great for targeting places where people don't understand the rules um because they'll come back with a problem and the answer to the problem will be oh, we need to write that more clearly. Mm. Um, but when we do, like, adventure testing, it's it's easier because we have a defined, hey, do this. I think we, it's hardest to test specific mechanics.
1: We did do, we, we did definitely have some specific mechanic tests in there. I remember yeah. towards the tail end of, of finishing up right at Firefight, uh, you and Jay put together a, like, a, a specific nomad and vehicle test where, like, the entire thing was like, you have these vehicles, you are on effectively like a, a big circular sort of obstacle track. You, your goal is to be the last one standing, if I remember correctly. And that was yeah, yeah, all was, vehicle
3: testing. Yeah, it was super hard to do those. Um, I think those were the hardest ones to set up because you're essentially writing a test scenario and a test. Yeah. The others have very natural experiments, quote unquote, borrow a term from economics. <laughs> but we got good feedback. Indeed.
0: Well it's yeah, it's super important. I Cody this is uh so it's not your first rodeo. Uh you lead designer on The Witcher, which I read that you pitched the the idea for Witcher RPG at seventeen. Which is insane. Yeah it was somewhere around there yeah i i find that fascinating as someone who was not doing anything <laughs> nearly as productive at at 17 what lessons did you did you learn um uh leading that that project so uh, so young that you've kind of brought on to your other projects and to red
1: so like the that project because i started it so young was a tremendous learning opportunity for me for a lot of reasons.
0: Mm.
1: Um, Like, I think the most uh, the, the biggest learning opportunity was just that I was very much more of an amateur game designer at that point. You know, I learned a lot about game design in putting that book together and a lot of stuff after putting that book together. You know, there's certain aspects of that book that I'm like, oh, man, I'll look at it now and go, I wish I had written that differently. I know how I would write that now.
0: Second edition when? (laughs) Ah, not saying anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But uh, the biggest, I think the like, wildly the biggest takeaway I think I got from that was just uh, the, the importance of bringing on other people to a project. Because I think, you know, not to brag, this made this incredibly difficult for me. Uh, like eighty percent of that book was effectively written entirely by me. Mm. You know, I brought on I brought on Lisa to write a bunch of the lore descriptions and to help me with the the internal consistency within the lore. But so much of that book was written and designed solely by me. You know, laid out by me. I I picked where all the art went and what art we were going to put into the book, and you know, made the cover and made the back and whatnot. And but by the end of that project, I think there's a certain when you first start a game design and and James can speak to this, maybe when you first start at, when you first start as a designer, you're like, Oh, I want to do it all myself. <laughs> and I'm like, I want this to be my project. And like, you know, I'll, I'll be able to put, you know, put my name on it and say like, yeah, this is my project or whatever. But by the end of that, I had put together like a 336 page book that like 80% of that was written by me. And at the end, I was just like, I don't, ever want to do this again (laughs) this was so much work and i i messed up at a lot of places i would not have messed up if i had other like if i had a secondary designer on there you know more permanently than just showing it to other people
3: in the company and being like
1: hey could you take a look at this
3: james did you
1: have that feeling with your first with your first project i'm curious
3: um well you know i'm i'm obsessed with you know japanese danish simplicity in game design so i I didn't have that problem, uh, but I will say that the drive for sole authorship is, uh, for me, has been um, it's so that you can um, suss out what you actually did in the project, so that when you need to go get more work, you can say, "Hey, I did this." Hey, I did this, and uh, it would be really great if we could create a culture where, you know, "Hey, I collaborated with these people" was more accepted as like, "Oh, that means something a lot." I find that, you know, collaboration is so important. And yet, uh, when it comes to, you know, getting your next job in the industry, it gets kind of bust thrown just a little
2: bit, which is unfortunate.
1: It really is incredibly necessary. I mean, I, you know, that is, like I said, that's a big takeaway from Witcher, you know, you, you can make great things on your own, but it's easier to make great things if you work with other
0: people. Uh,
2: We can definitely agree with that. Yeah, totally. I I think this um, uh, kind of is something that I want to touch upon as well as uh, Cody, you've used a, a couple of times now, you've said you've talked about uh, things that you messed up on or things that didn't quite work out the way you anticipated. And James, I know similarly you've uh, talked a bit about how Triangulate with the uh, with the game that you uh, developed both in physical and in iOS form that it didn't quite go the way that you planned, but it had a big heart. And so there's clearly passion on both fronts. What I'm interested in is talking more broadly about uh, lessons that you took away from that you kind of apply broadly to future um, projects. So like what are some lessons in game design or even just being as players and being immersed in uh, tabletops and video games that didn't maybe pan out the way you want, but you learned valuable lessons in what they might be.
3: I think that, uh, I mean, my, a lot of, I'd say more iteration, um, like don't be afraid to really, really early iterate a bunch of different things. And um, see if they're fun, even at a super micro level. Make a slice to see if that slice is fun before pouring a bunch of time into it. I think I've learned a lot about that. Sort of sketch, do lots of sketching before you sort of start
0: to, to fill in the lines.
3: Yeah, yeah. Do a lot of early, early testing to see if it's worth spending more time on versus, you know, just trying to go out of the gate and make a perfect beautiful thing the first time without screwing up at all <laughs> i screw up a lot first i think if i if
1: i can jump in here james yeah go ahead i think my i think the biggest thing i took away which is actually something that working with james helped a lot to to really show was that there is there are a lot of places in in witcher where i i learned as i was working on them and working on later Witcher products that like it is very much everything has to be in a certain amount of balance because everything interacts with each other. Um, There are a lot of places in the Witcher TRPG where, you know, because of the initial, you know, we were initially, the plan was to take the core system from Cyberpunk and change it to fit Witcher. There were a lot of bits of, like, very detailed, very simulationist design that in some places would conflict with or stack with other design that was brought in to simulate Witcher that either made it weird or made for like loopholes that really, really clever players or horrible min-maxers could have used (laughs) or really like break things. So it it really sort of hammered home that if you're going to build a very granular or very complex system, you have to be extremely careful about where those things can intersect with each other. Because I've seen, I've seen four or five moments now where somebody has done something in a Witcher actual play that by raw they can do, but I never anticipated <laughs> they were going to do, you know, I, I wrote the rules, but I never anticipated that they were going to do that spe- you know, use that specific spell in conjunction with this specific effect. My favorite was feels a, a
0: lot like being a game master. Yeah,
1: well, there was I watched totally. one of the first one of the first uh, Witcher actual plays. I watched somebody did this cool combo where they used um, a fireball spell to hit somebody and then killed them with the fireball spell, fireball spell, but lit their body on fire. And then the next round, they used a separate fire spell to make that fire from the corpse leap onto another another enemy. And I was like.
2: I oh guess God! they
1: technically can do that. I hadn't planned for that.
2: I like the idea of you sitting by a computer, just fingers steepled, watching intently, like just writing notes. Oh, shit. <laughs> what are they doing oh, now? god!
1: There are also some weird things with just like making sure that systems work properly and, you know, are rendered in a way that they not only feel right, but they work mechanically. But yeah, that's the long and
0: the short of it. Something I want to talk about in Red a bit more uh, specifically, but also uh, in less of a kind of mechanics way. Something what we uh, picked up on very early when we were preparing for our season is that Red has this really big shift in tone from 2020. It's a little less... Kind of oppressive. It's gritty and it's violent and it's dangerous, but there's kind of more hope, there's more scope for the players to uh, achieve things and make permanent changes to their own lives or other people's lives. Is that something that um, you did uh, or approached uh, intentionally, or is it something that sort of grew organically during the design?
3: I think that um, since it's about putting the world back together, uh, essentially, uh, there needs to be a general hope idea in there. It's sort of. A-
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Uh, it sort of helps that, you know, you see 2077 right over the horizon. Oh, oh, looks like they succeeded in putting the world back together. It's like we showed the end of the movie, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we had to get there. You know that society is back. Uh, so there's an... It's squaring off that idea of, like, I know how this movie ends uh, with the world itself. And, uh, you know... Being uh, in in twenty twenty even uh, being uh, being content inside your own dystopia is a is a general cyberpunk concept. So I think it, it makes sense given the like the bookends of the edition. But was, um, more yeah, I, can speak,
1: I can speak. to talking with Mike early on in the project. Part of the reason he really wanted to do the red, red the way he wanted to do. Uh, you know, the way we wound up doing it is very much along the lines of what James was saying. It was also uh, inspired by the fact that we had gotten to this point in 2020 where through many, many adventures and many, many books, everything had sort of gotten bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where, you know, in 2020, there was this understanding that you were absolutely the underdog you know, the, you cannot win in 2020. You can, the best you can achieve is a Pyrrhic victory Mm -hmm. because, you know, no matter what you do, Arasaka is so big and so powerful that there's literally no way that you're going to be able to do something really significant against them. The best you can do is spite them while they attempt to stomp all over you. So to some extent, unless you played those really high powered campaigns there was a certain amount of like it's thematically appropriate in many places, but sort of limitation of you, unless you go absolutely insane, you're, you're never going to be quite at the power level to take on a lot of the like big, super crazy threats.
0: A sort of nihilism so a of or was, defeatism. In yeah. A way.
1: So a lot of red was about basically saying, we're going to take all those big threats that you previously, you know, you were absolutely a cyberpunk, you know, you're, You're fighting against the system, but, you know, I fought the law and the law won. And we're going to bring them, we're going to sort of kneecap them and bring them back down to a point where maybe you can win. You know, it's not easy. Arasaka is still a tremendous, extremely dangerous corporation. Same with Militech, same with, you know, any number all the way down to, like, the smaller ones like Raven Microsybe. But you have a... a 10% chance of really doing something. And that 10% chance is is so important.
0: I think it's really interesting, James, you say, well, you know, 2077 says... Uh, the its ex- existence means that society comes back but it also means the the kind of the opposite all the gains that your punks might make in 2045 are kind of wiped away by the old order by the by the powerful kind of taking things back so I think there's a sort of uh there's a sort of both there's still that pyrrhic victory uh, feel kind of makes it into 2045 because you know any anything good can't really last forever is that something that that you feel born out
1: um i think but the, the the thing i find cool about that in a, in a way is that it it maintains a sort of cyclical nature of cyberpunk which is that night city will forever be tied to corporations mm. like all the way back to its foundation night city has been tied to corporations but there are a lot of corporations in 2077 that did not exist in, in 2045 or did not exist in 2020. That, you know, one of the things we say in, um, in red is that that may wind up being you effectively. Mm. You know, um, a bunch of the corporations that we see in 2777, like Rostovic, and I believe even, um, you know, some of the others. Are corporations that we had not heard of at any point in in twenty twenty or even twenty forty five. Assuming that it may be that you become that, you know, it may not be that you are entirely wiped away in the years between twenty forty five and twenty seventy seven. It may be that you rise to that level of power. Your character may become like one of the big fixers that we see in twenty seventy seven. But to some extent, it is that cyclical nature of. You start out fighting the corporations, and it may be that you get the power, but at the moment you get the power, you sort of become what you had been fighting against the entire time.
3: Yeah, I, um, I think there's also an aspect of, um, of context matters uh, here. Like in 2045, let's say you have a big win, and you might really feel like there's hope. Uh, but in 2077, it might have meant nothing you still felt like you had hope
1: mm. and you're
3: not role-playing from the perspective of someone looking back on their life in 2077. Although that would be a very cool idea. <laughs> uh, somebody should do that campaign.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> like a nice framing device. Or you're role-playing awesome.
3: from the perspective of the present. And at least in the present, you can feel like you have hope. And feeling like you have hope is really all you need.
1: If I may, there's something to be said that in the, in the size of the scope of Red. There are certain yeah. things that are big, that are big in red that would not be big in 2020 or would not be big in in 2077. Like the variability to find like a linear frame, for instance, to get one of those sort of power suit type setups in 2020 was as as difficult as I just need to acquire the money to get it, and you know it'd be roughly the same in 2077. But in red. You know, that is a great victory because that says not only did you acquire the money, which would be in no no way cheap, but you also had to find that thing. You also had to, you know, talk to talk to fixers and find out where you get it or steal it, you know, find a night market somewhere in the city or, yeah, steal it. But if you're stealing it, the only place you're going to find that is in a corporate warehouse Mm. and. If you're trying to do that, the corpse may not be as dangerous as they were in 2020, but they're still real dangerous. So there is a greater value to some things in red that there isn't exactly in 2020 or 20, 2077.
0: And that also the lack of structure in the city as well, where you know there's less transport, there's less kind of defined security forces, just gives this sort of bit of more looseness about how players approach getting the things that they want but i feel like there's more avenues because the the world is still trying to work out who who does what and who has the who has the power definitely i
2: i do i do have a question in in regards to uh you talked about um uh context and and, and values and i'm interested about that Uh, with both of you personally not just as game designers but as players and GMs yourself because obviously that's going to bleed into what you want to design and what you want to write about so I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of um, outside of uh, Talzorian games, what are the sorts of games you play and what kind of what attracts you to those sort of games and what do you value as a player and um, as game masters yourselves that potentially might blend into the way you like to present and write games?
3: Okay, I'll start. I, I, le- I made you start last time. It's only fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a long-running D&D 5th edition campaign. I like playing with uh, people who have never played games before. Because you get to see them learning the game and it's self-serving because yes, it bleeds into my work. Um, But uh, I've been able to run a game, uh, a singular campaign in a singular world for like going on three years now. And that I think has, uh, has really bled into, I need to make sure these settings have longevity that can, can have that three year game where that can make sense. I guess also because it's fifth edition, I've learned very quickly how important it is to have a game as accessible as that. Because it needs to bring in not only people who've just played D and D, which is a lot of people in the industry, but also people who've never played before. It needs to be somebody's first game, you know.
1: I I agree. I agree with that. I the way I tend to the way I tend to run. I I have a group. I have a dedicated TRPG group, which is very heavy on. on on role-playing and social interaction so a lot of what i tend to run is you know very sort of social interaction almost leading into sort of soap opera style games where you know the the initial plot line is there but a lot of the focus is also on character interaction and character development so a lot of a lot of that has bled into my game design philosophy in ways of just i like I like to put ways into games to get character development and cool things about your character, good role-playing opportunities, something that, you know, you can start playing a character and then 20 sessions later, you can look at your character and say, wow, you know, things have changed. I have had character development. I have a cool new ability that lets me do this cool new role-playing thing, or I have a very awesome weapon that has a story behind it or something of the like I, I really strive to sort of give people that opportunity and help gms to create stories that have a lot of like character development and role-playing opportunities as well as being fun to fun to play
0: we definitely kind of appreciate that as as people come from like a theater making background a performance background we like to sort of play in scenes and and uh, you know bringing in things like you know that the life path stuff or the the things in red that are there for for kind of flavor and for style you know you got the
2: critical role table like how it's yeah, not just yeah. it's, it's not story. just your arm gets blown off it's how does it get blown off what happens how does that affect that person just by looking at them like it's it's all those little tangible details that just goes, surpasses beyond just counting squares and just saying in black and white terms, well, this happens and this happens. Yeah,
0: Yeah. not to say that people who play it like a board game are doing it wrong. Absolutely not. I think um, it's really good to have that. And here you say that you have that philosophy that you want to... Uh, marry those things together because in my personal opinion that is when roleplay is at its best when it facilitates both and they and they um they work well together i want to know a little bit about do the two of you ever actually get to play (laughs) characters (laughs) and when you do what sort of characters do you make
1: i am actually in a cyberpunk red game right now um which is very interesting my my sister is running a game with our roommates uh and myself and I'm playing i uh, I'm playing a tech uh, who is cr- who is currently in hiding because um, they were they were taken at a very they were like in they were a, a corporate child who was indoctrinated at a very young age into this like corporate not like super soldier but like this basically building uh, corporate agents for bodyguards for high level executives and stuff so they're in hiding with this nomad group while trying to kind of avoid. Avoid the corpse they escape from while becoming a great inventor. It's very interesting to actually get to interact with the rules that you sort of had some amount of hand in in putting in and working with. Um, so yeah, it's I very rarely I very rarely get to actually play in games, but it's always interesting when I do. By the way, James, your your work on the on the tech tree, the tech ability. Um, special ability is is fucking great
2: i i played a tech in our campaign of subpunk red and it's some of the most fun i've ever had role playing just that the the role abilities are just oh beautiful to work
0: you you played field tech didn't you yeah mainly yeah
2: because i remember in the jumpstart kit it says you can be an inventor just be aware don't break the game because it it is yeah that's in the main rules Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah yeah
3: you ask nicely yeah exactly if asking nicely help should we have been more aggressive
2: I really wish you had of just a, a good clip around my ears and letting me know to behave
0: thankfully he didn't go inventor and I didn't have to
2: clip his wings too much James I'm I'm super excited on your answer on on being a player as well because am I also right can you also talk about your experience in uh, as a player you played with your physics teacher in high school
3: I did I did um, but that's it's been a long time since I've been able to really play Honestly, I thought I was going to get to uh, during another podcast, which I won't, you know, pitch in the middle of your podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, now they want me to. GM the game so oh nice. right <laughs> oh,
0: but if you when you do get to play what sort of archetypes do you like are you a, are you a combat uh wombat or do you like to um, play someone smooth and sophisticated what do you what do you go for tragic backstory oh,
3: yeah oh yeah uh, no I, I like playing um I don't know I, I think sometimes when whenever that happens and it does happen very rarely uh, mostly I GM I like to play a character that sort of can like get out of the way or mostly interact with the other characters characters to try to you know like Im- improve the general like table atmosphere type thing
0: a sort of supporting role you, by um, a supporting yeah.
3: like a support like i like to play like a supporting role in that type of thing and uh i do like to i do like to enjoy myself some combat so uh definitely if they've got the equivalent of a champion fighter i like to just play <laughs> the, the simple one that's easy to understand so i can you know so that can the, that stuff can get out of the way so i can focus on role-playing at some point i'm gonna get you in a, in a game james that's <laughs> okay it's, i'm ready i'm ready i've got uh, i've got all the test characters for cyberpunk red <laughs> <laughs> which one do you want me to run we're fair for the uh, the horror of the uh, internal linear frame doctor who administers their own combat drugs oh jesus
0: <laughs> black out the eyeballs
3: no, they don't need it's, black lace. Oh, they have right. pharmaceuticals that have no downside. Oh wow! <laughs> it's quite, it's quite terrifying. Colloquially, we refer to the character as a uh, daddy shark. <laughs>
0: So Cody, both yourself and Mike are famous for having a lot of irons in the fire at once. Uh, you know, as much detail we as are. you as you do. Well, I, something I read about you said in interviews that you like to work on lots of different stuff. Yeah, uh, I, and I was just wondering, you know, as much detail as you as you can or you want to go into, what sort of other things are you are you working on at the moment?
1: Uh, I mean, I can't go into a ton of detail on the on directly the projects I'm working of on. I, I have I have one project which I can say f- effectively nothing on, which has been <laughs> a passion project since I was in like junior high school. Um, which is it has seen so many iterations now; it, it barely looks like what it was when I first created it. But I'm hoping to someday actually be able to do that in a published form. But like I said, I can't really say pretty much anything about it. <laughs> and I've got. I've had a whole lot of other stuff that I just work on in my spare time. I, I enjoy game design just like as a hobby as well as my job. So, uh, I've done stuff. I've, I've helped other friends with designing games and helping them with system. Um, I, I, I really put a bunch of my, a bunch of my focus in, um, when I'm not doing like directly work related stuff, I, I try to do like really in-depth games. Recently, I've been doing a, I've been doing an absolutely uh, suicidal uh, game concept of doing a a series of legacy games where um, you build a single world and then you basically play with the same players following the, the lineage of their first characters moving through the history of that world. Partially inspired by the fact that I have a, co- I I collect TRPG systems, but I I don't. At a certain point, I realized I was never going to get to play all of them <laughs> if I didn't do
0: something. Wow,
1: so we do one game. That is am-
0: we, ambitious.
1: <laughs> oh, it's it's actually quite fascinating. The first game was a uh, was uh, an Ice Age game in the French TRPG Verm, um, and then the game after that was a like Bronze Age campaign using Rune RuneQuest. And The game after that was like an Iron Age campaign in um, Ragnarok: Fate of the Norns.
2: Got it. How do you it's, keep it's on like this? a it's like a it's like a cross game, amazing Assassin's Creed style, like epic.
1: It kinda is. It's absolutely. It's it's it can be an absolute pain to run <laughs> because every like every ten games, every ten or twelve games, I'd switch up systems and we move to another another set of characters in that lineage. And everybody swaps one to the right, so everybody's playing the the ancestor, that not the ancestor, the descendant of one wow. of the other
2: players. <laughs> oh god, um, my anxiety is through the roof.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of fun, and my players love it. But it's really fascinating to try and like
3: try and do that quick swap of of systems. I was just looking forward to Cody uh, answering about that, so y'all could hear about it. I think oh. it's crazy. It's absolute
1: insanity, and I probably bit off way more than I can chew, but. My players love it. It's,
2: it sounds like you've taken five off your five years off your life with a project like that.
1: I probably have, but every, <laughs> everybody at the table gets really excited because they're all talking about like, well, when I'm playing your Descendant or like well, <laughs> there's an a afterlife in the setting. So they're like, people get to talk about what their characters, who are the ancestors of the current characters, would think of what the current characters are doing.
0: It really reminds me of, one of my favorite novels uh, The Years of Rice and Salt which follows uh you know characters with the same uh the same souls essentially they they're re- reincarnated so that's really really fun yeah. to see such a huge concept make its way into a game
1: It's something interesting <laughs>
0: Again, I know that detail is not something you're, you're going to drill down into, but in a, in a broad sense, this definitely isn't the end of the journey for Red. This is the first step. There's, I know there's at least one kind of more book on the way. You see uh, with the reception this has had, uh, you know, that, that Red, I, I think it will. But, you know, how do you feel about the future that Red has?
3: I think Red has a great future. It's been amazing uh, seeing the game come out and seeing all the stories on the Reddit. It's been an absolute blast for me. I think that it would be very strange if we only put out one book supporting this line.
2: Oh, what a power move, by the way. You just do the core book and then just close (laughs) up Talzorian. (laughs) Right, we're doing Tun now.
3: (laughs) This is our magnum
1: opus. We're, We're just shutting down now. No, we actually, I can't say anything specific, but we do, well, I can say some specific things. We do have a number of things that we want to do. Well, we generally a lot of our design process here at and is once we've come up with the with the core book, uh, whoever is the lead designer, in this case Mike, usually has like a bunch of ideas of of supplements that they want to do. And then we kind of decide when and where and how we can do those various supplements. It's the same situation with Witcher. But yeah, at the moment we've got We've got a a um a book called Black Chrome in the works, which is going to be a gear book for the core book, which is going to bring in a bunch of new interesting stuff for your players to mess with. We've got some other stuff in the in the line that I can't quite talk about at the moment. Tons of
3: new weapons, tons of new weapons are on Ooh.
0: the way. Ugh. Oh yeah, uh, my sort of my favorite book of the original run was was the night city, source, night city book. source book yeah it's just i love all the extra extra detail and the extra texture that went into there and i can imagine that that's something you really you you'll be keen to get into as well at some point is to is to flesh out the minutiae of the this the, the playground of that people get to run around in.
1: I obviously I can't say that we're going to do a, a night. <laughs> of course, I would consider it extremely strange if we didn't.
2: Yeah, I, I think for myself, what I'm, I, what I cannot wait to get my hands on is I just love reading campaign books and adventure books, and I'm really because like I remember reading a, a 2020 book where I was like what this it's an underwater prison, and the whole point is to try and escape. For, this is absolutely bonkers. I love it, so I'm really like just raring to go to kind of get into the mind of some of the designers and writers and just see some of like the insane pre-made modules that you guys come up with.
1: We got some really good ideas. And I think the nice part about red is that we have so many ideas that were touched on in the, in the core book that I know I have a lot of things that I want to expand on at some point. Like we talked about stuff like the deep downs, which are the, um, the underwater cities uh, off the coast of various continents and I'm still dying to do a book about the high riders who are the, the space faction
2: and stuff like that. So
0: uh, the the LEO uh yeah. settings. Yeah, yeah. That that's a really
2: neuromancer to me. I really like that idea of that stuff. You know, feel free to feel free to set a campaign in Australia. We won't say no. <laughs> like love to know what's happening in twenty forty five here. It's not great, <laughs> but it's
3: not terrible <laughs> for my recollection. Didn't we didn't we not there's a paragraph, right, Cody? What page is that? Uh I <laughs>
1: I don't know if there's a paragraph directly on Australia. Um, I know that, if I remember correctly, Australia gets hit really hard by... Uh, by what's it called? God, I'm, by, my entire brain is shut down.
2: <laughs> by a giant it gets, kangaroo. Barely,
1: it, gets, it gets solidly hit by uh, climate change, which leads to yeah. a lot of nasty things. We're
2: mostly desert already, so yeah, yeah. That, that kind of reflects real life, so I can buy that. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> thought you guys were making fiction, not history. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, we like to dabble in both.
0: <laughs> so it's interesting you have this sort of speculative world, but it's also sort of split from history at like the nineties. So uh, do you do you have to balance those those things of like trying to make predictions and also kind of keep it internal?
1: All I can say is that we, we have we have an interesting history in Cyberpunk of the, the, the the time where that primarily comes into play is brands. You know, in more recent years, we've kind of stripped out all of the stuff. But in 2020, we had a lot of brand name stuff because those companies existed during the time period before we split off. We have a fun time with like what things could possibly still happen in the cyberpunk world. I mean, that's as, kind of as much as I can really say.
3: I always thought that uh, it was all accidental. It was all just trying to create a realistic setting that ended up being a little too realistic for its own good sometimes, <laughs> and limited start, amounts. I can
1: speak to the, in that case, it, it weirdly, it's less, I think in a lot of cases, it's less accidental um, than one might think. You know, a lot of, like I said previously, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the foundation of the alternate timeline stuff is based on Mike doing a lot of research on current events and, and historical, sort of the flow of history. were. A lot of that, a, a lot of the, like, a lot of people talk about Mike being, like, quote-unquote prophetic and stuff like that which a lot of that is just you know mike does a lot of research on stuff before he puts anything to paper
0: yeah well i hope for all of our sakes that you do get some of it wrong Uh, (laughs) yeah um so far
1: we're in 2020 and we've managed to avoid uh we've managed to avoid the horrible effects of the of the collapse and all we have to worry about now is is uh, Amazon and Google starting the fourth corporate. Yeah, yeah. A-
2: absolutely. Nothing has gone wrong in 2020. You're absolutely right. That's correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for giving up your
0: time today. Uh, some really amazing and fascinating insights. Uh, both into Red specifically and the the process and the creative process and relationship you have. I want to reiterate our appreciation and our congratulations on uh, the achievement that is Red. Uh, and I hope it, it goes on to uh, all the success that you hope for. Well,
1: I'm really glad you guys had a good time with it. That's our number thanks one goal. For, thanks for having us on,
3: and congratulations on your season.
2: Oh, Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate that. We also just wanted to uh, draw this uh, p- part of the podcast towards anything that you'd like to draw attention to. Is there any places uh, that we can find you on social media or obviously Cyberpunk Red is out and available to purchase now, but is there anything else you'd like our listeners to to be uh, drawn towards?
1: Well, uh, you can find us at com um we've got a blog site where we put up new information a lot of times about the stuff we're working on and we have a store site we have you know twitter and instagram and facebook and stuff like that run by our our wonderful social media manager jay gray he posts lots of fun stuff on our twitter
2: illustrious jay
3: yeah mostly keep keep your eyes peeled for for new stuff you can go support your friendly local game store through the bits and mortar program they're a part of it It's really easy to get them to sign up and if uh, you get them to sign up and you buy the physical book with them, uh, you'll get a PDF for free.
2: So if if it wasn't made abundantly clear, Cyberpunk Red, the core rulebook, is out now. It is available, Hello. depending on where you are in the world. The physical copies would definitely be coming your way if it is not already there. I know here in Australia we've got a, a, a slight bit of time, a bit of a wait, yeah. But the PDF is still available. You can you can still get your eyes and and hands on it one way or another.
0: And uh, I would I would say you know there's also a, a growing community. You can start at uh, with our Saurian uh, Games as socials. But um, I'm sure that will lead you into other people who are out there playing the game and um, on their Discord, they're talking about it. There's a big community now taking shape and I think everyone
2: um, who's interested in this sort of thing should go out and be a part of it. And also, uh, the last thing that we uh, need to announce as Roll to Cast is what is coming up as of next week where we will be beginning our Season 4, which will be uh, myself in the Keeper's chair diving into the wonderful world of Pulp Cthulhu. Ooh, that's going to be fun. It's a manic ride. There's a lot of silly accents. <laughs> None of us are playing Australian. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, once again and finally, thank you so much uh, to the both of you, James and Cody, for coming on and spending time talking to us. We really appreciate it. And it's been a lot of fun. Oh, I had a ton of fun. Oh, me too. Bye and take care. Stay safe. I've been Sean. I've been Phil. And you have been James and Cody, haven't you?
3: <laughs> yes, yes, we have. Oh, i so I like it. <laughs>
0: Roll to Cast, Feed the Beast is a Baby Beard media production. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And all our podcasts from on Spreaker, Spotify, YouTube, and all good podcatchers. You can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash babybeard. Cyberpunk Red and all associated properties are trademarked of our Talsorian Games. Used with permission.
2: Been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows
3: for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.
0: My name is Brian Burton. It's been 26 years since the bombs fell. Since I've left the vault, I've been trying to rebuild. This isn't the Appalachia that I remember. There's so much more to everything going on. And I promise to find the answer. So if you're out there, if you're listening, just hone in on these coordinates. Remember, there's a place for you at the end. Omega. The Omega Broadcast Fallout Story is available on iTunes, Spotify, and many great podcasting sources.